Good morning. It is, I just, man, I feel like it's like a old home week to be able to be here. I've been here almost every year on Saturday Wellspring, so to come back is just feels like coming home. It's so wonderful to see many familiar faces, but also new faces. Just, I, if I don't know you, would you come introduce yourself? Because um, it's just a, such a joy to come and see women who want to be equipped and want to be established. Okay. All right. I feel like I need to get organized here. Just bear with me. Okay. So, yeah, a couple housekeeping things, and then we will have our lesson. So, as Janet mentioned, this is just a gift for you. It's a, a we call it our prayer booklet. It's a booklet that um, has a lot of resources to help our prayer life because prayer is such a privilege. It is um, just, it's essential to our relationship with God and to our own heart shepherding, but it can be challenging. And so this booklet is designed to help with that. There are lots of resources to help us with our prayer life. There are tools that will help you walk through a passage of scripture and learn how to turn that into prayer for your own prayer life. And there are um, pages that give you scriptures to get you started in prayer in ways other than just making requests of God to praise him and thank him and to confess sin and to rehearse the gospel, maybe to pray for some things you wouldn't normally think of. Um, There are some of the notes from some of the Wellspring lessons and some thoughts on how to use those in your prayer life. Um, There's tools to help you repent, to help you fight sin, to be prepared to fight sin. So there are just lots of resources in here. And you have a homework question. I think it's the day-to-day question that will take you to this. So I encourage you to look at this here in the next couple days, look at the homework question, because I think you're gonna be told to use something in here and come back and be ready to share it with your group. And so too many times on Friday night, I've looked at a homework question and thought, oh man, okay, what can I do in the next three hours that I can share tomorrow? So I'm just giving you a heads up. Now you you guys all know that you're gonna wanna look at that ahead of time. So if you have any questions, feel free to ask me or any of the Wellspring leaders because anyone would love to help you um, understand how to strengthen your prayer life with that. Okay. Um, All right, so we talked about that. Okay, and then you also got a little half sheet of paper. It's on the resource table by the window. And um, this is from this book, which I highly recommend. You guys have probably already been commended to get that book. It's just a really great book that I love to go back to over and over. Um, but this particular excerpt from it, um, it's the size you can tuck it in the back of the prayer book, by the way, when you're done, so you don't just have a loose sheet of paper floating around. Um, but I find it really helpful in shepherding my heart to think biblically about the work of a believer, because today we're going to talk a lot about what God has for us to do as believers. God does have things for us to do, and so we need to be careful to make sure we're clear about the difference between saying that our good works earn favor from God, which is never true, and the right place, the good place that works have in displaying God's work in our lives and displaying our love for God. And so you can read that on your own. I hope you'll find it really encouraging as I did. All right, so let me pray and we will move on. Oh, Heavenly Father, again, I am just so grateful for you. Thank you that you are a God who wants to reveal yourself and that you have revealed yourself in your word and you've revealed yourself with clarity and you've revealed yourself in your son. Oh Lord, you are holy. 
And Lord, it's through your provision alone, the provision of your son at the cross, that we can be reconciled to you. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of faith. And thank you that you are committed to finishing the work you've begun in us. Lord, thank you that we can come together as your people, that we have this place. Lord, thank you for every one of these women and the desire they have to be with your people and to be under the teaching of your word and, and to grow and to be equipped to encourage others and to minister to others and to be lights for Christ in their homes. Lord, I am so grateful. That is all evidence of your grace at work in us and amongst us. I pray that as we um, go through the lesson today that you would be pleased to let your spirit do, do your work in us pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives in ways that make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen. I do apologize. I'm fighting a cold. I'll try not to. hope that's not too distracting. Okay. Well, I am really thankful for the opportunity to open up God's word with you today. God's word is true. It is right. It's powerful. I'm sorry. I'm going to change this. There we go. Um, and I really, really love the passage that we're studying today. And if you aren't familiar with it or you don't love it yet, my prayer is that you will come to love it. Um, but I want you to know I don't stand here as someone who has all this figured out. I am a beggar, and I'm helping other beggars find bread. I need this bread as much as anyone in this room. Um, lately, there are circumstances in my life that make me more aware of this than ever. So thank you for coming together and helping me grow, too. Um, and so even as we look to God in his word to continue the good work that he has begun in all those who know him. So our lesson today brings all of the disciplines together. We see God's heart for the home in so much of what the young women need to be trained in. And we see God's heart for ministry in the role of older women. And all of that flows from our heart and that's why discipline one is so important. Like you heard last time when Anne was here, discipline one means shepherding our hearts to draw near to the Lord in his word and prayer so that we're ready to shepherd our attitudes, our thoughts, our responses all day long to trust and obey the Lord. And that's the foundation that enables us to fulfill Titus two. So if you haven't already, turn to Titus two in your Bible. And while we do that, uh, I want you to start thinking about a few questions. Do you care about the health of this church? Do you care about the protection of your family and your household? Do you care about the honor of God's word? Do you care about the reputation of God's grace? Well, my guess is that your answer to these questions is yes. If you're a believer, if you've been rescued from your slavery to sin and to self by the blood of Jesus and you belong to him, if Jesus is your Lord and your delight, then you do care about these things. And um, you care about these things because God cares about these things. And we see God's care in the book of Titus. In Titus, Paul was addressing a problem. Titus 1.5 tells us that the churches in Crete were out of order, and that's why Paul left Titus there. The churches needed to be put in order, and they needed elders to help bring that about. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul described a problem in the churches on Crete that the elders must address. There were rebellious men who said 
They knew God, but they denied him by their deeds. And they were having an influence. Households were being thrown into confusion because they were teaching things they shouldn't teach. There was unsound teaching, ungodly living, and it resulted in upheaval. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul wrote to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. See, unsound teaching must be met with sound teaching, with sound doctrine. And the church must be instructed how to live in light of that sound doctrine. And that's what follows in chapter 2. For men, for women, even for slaves, for everyone in the church. Because when there are people who profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds, it's all the more essential that those who truly know God display that they have been transformed by his grace. And Paul describes grace beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, like Janet read for us. We're going to read it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That's all that we were before God saved us. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what he has just told how to do in the beginning of chapter 2. And then listen to what he said about Jesus. He said that grace instructs us to be godly and to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us. That means to set us free from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, grace saves us, and it instructs us to live out what Christ accomplished for us. Those who are saved go from being worthless for any good deed to being zealous for good deeds as Jesus own purified possession believer you belong to Jesus and Titus 2 3 through 5 is where we find what it looks like to be women who have been purified to be Jesus own possession women who are zealous for good deeds so let's read what grace instructs us to do in Titus 2 3 through 5 older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now on your outline, you have a chart. The first column lists different manifestations of sin described in Titus. This is on the first page of your notes. There are descriptions of the culture. These are all descriptions of the culture or of the rebels or of the believers before they were saved in the book of Titus. And the second column lists the instructions for women we just read in Titus 2. And it's helpful to look at these side by side because it shows us that what grace instructs us to be displays the powerful transformation that the gospel makes in a believer's life. Through Christ's redeeming work, we are transformed from ungodliness to reverence, from malice to rejecting malicious gossip, from enslavement 
to rejecting enslavement. That means freedom from teaching what shouldn't be taught to teaching what is good, from upsetting families to encouraging young women to be godly in their households, from hate to love, from foolishness and deceit to sensibility, from being defiled to being pure, from laziness and worthless deeds to fruitful work in our homes, from malice and envy to kindness, and from disobedience to submissiveness to our own husbands. See, sin that is not dealt with upsets churches, it upsets families, and it sullies the reputation of God's word, of God's people, and of the gospel before a watching world. But our obedience counters that. Our godliness is essential for the church to be well-ordered, for our households to be strengthened, for God's word to be protected from dishonor so that God's grace is put on display. So now let's turn to page two of our worksheet. You can see there the summary of our passage. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed young women. Notice that both our godliness and our relationships woman to woman are emphasized in this passage. Now, Roman numeral one on the outline, what older women transformed by the gospel must be. What is an older woman? Well, the text doesn't indicate a specific age range. It's probably referring to women who are at least 50 or 60, women whose children are grown. Paul is laying out here a job description for older women. What a blessing that is. See, when we come to this season where the demands of our household are not as great, we must not think that we aren't needed anymore or that now it's time for me. That's not God's plan for us at all. He has given us a role that protects his word from dishonor. And that job is for us to encourage and train younger women. And so this is what we all need to be aiming for. If you're a young woman, then this is your time of preparation for older woman ministry. And there's also an implication here because older is a relative term. Everyone is older than someone. That though most older women have more opportunity for this kind of ministry because of their season of life, all of us can do this to some degree with those who are younger, maybe younger in their age or maybe younger in their faith. And all of us benefit from being teachable younger women, no matter our age, as we learn from other women and let them spur us on in our walk with the Lord. We build these relationships in many different ways in the church. It could be women with whom we serve or in our small group here in Wellspring, maybe someone you meet at a Friday night fellowship. We also have a mentoring ministry for women. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. So if you're interested in that, reach out to Chris Evans. Her contact information is at the end of the worksheet and there are applications for the mentoring ministry. I'm not sure that they made them in here this morning, but I think they're usually at the info table. Are they usually out there, Bethany? Okay, well contact Chris or contact Allie in the church office if you would like that. Um, but because Chris, that's one way she serves us is she helps connect women who would like help building that kind of a relationship. Okay, so given the important responsibility of an older woman, let's look at the kind of woman she must be. 
The character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She's reverent in her behavior, she is not a malicious gossip, she is not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. Her life sets an example that others can follow. These qualities make her the kind of woman who is ready to encourage and train younger women and who can do that with integrity. That doesn't mean that she's perfect, but it means that the trajectory of her life is one that loves what God has purchased her to be and is continually seeking to grow in these ways. So let's look more closely at each of these qualities. We'll start with reverence. Now the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. Paul is saying that the older women are to do everything with a view towards worshiping God. We are to see all of our lives as set apart for God. We must not be deceived by the false spirituality that's so common, even in many Christian circles. Being reverent doesn't mean being mystical. <clears throat> it's not living by impressions or clinging to only certain favorite aspects of God's character rather than the whole counsel of God. True reverence understands that there's only one place where we go to hear from God, and that's from his word. Genuine reverence for God overflows in our behavior as we respond to his word with worshipful obedience in everything we do. Not just in our quiet time, not just when we're at church, but always, especially when nobody's watching. Now, there's a question in your outline. You'll see these throughout the worksheet where they're marked with stars. Before doing your homework, come back and read all of these starred questions. We don't have time to read them all together as we go through the lesson. But in your homework, you're going to come back and pick, I think, two of them to answer. And we've just assigned two of them because we want you to make them count. Um, we want you to pick questions that will really challenge you to grow and take time to pray about it, think about it, and answer in a really meaningful way so that you have a really clear and specific resolve about how to run hard after godliness in whichever questions you find, whichever ones you select. All right. Number two on the outline then is not malicious gossips. The Greek word for malicious gossips is translated as slanderers in the ESV, and it's used 34 times in the New Testament for the devil. He is the one who accuses and slanders us before God. So this is serious. Slander is literally diabolical. Of the three instances in which it refers to speech rather than to the devil, two of them are specifically directed at women. So this can be a real temptation, and we need to be on the alert to recognize it, even under other labels like venting, processing, or posting. And then as we put off sinful speech, such as slander and gossip, accusations, by God's grace, we must put on speech, which is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 4.29, I think you have that in your notes. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. This verse gives us four filters for evaluating our words. The first filter is, are these wholesome words? Are they worthwhile? There should be nothing rotten or spoiled about our words. 
The second filter is, are they good for edification? Are they going to build others up? Will these words be helpful to others? The third filter is this. Am I speaking according to the need of the moment? Is this the right time to speak? And then the fourth filter, will these words give grace to those who hear them? And it's fair to add, as we consider slander, do they give grace to those about whom we are speaking? There is a time to talk about problems. That was Ephesians 4.29. Yeah. We need to talk about problems with the right people for the right purpose, to call others to repentance, to pursue reconciliation. That kind of talk isn't gossip or slander. That's wholesome and edifying. But the warning here is not to be slanderers. In our minds, where we might replay other shortcomings over and over again, in our minds remembering an offense, or in our words, either publicly on social media or privately when we're alone with a friend. And we need to be careful not to even listen to it. Believers have been set free from that. And now we're being made more and more like our Savior, who is our advocate, not our accuser. We must imitate him by advocating for others in prayer rather than finding sinful satisfaction in gossip and slander. Well, that brings us to page three. Number three on the outline is not enslaved to much wine. This means to not be mastered by alcohol. Nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places he condemns drunkenness. Now the emphasis here is on that word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Clearly that was a problem with the women in the churches on Crete, because that's what Paul addressed here. And still today, many see alcohol as an escape. The reality, however, is that it only enslaves those who hope to escape through it. And alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves when we seek to escape or find comfort through it. It could be food, shopping, our phone, exercise. The list goes on and on. We are in danger of bondage if we turn to these things to escape or to try to find comfort, to make us happy. These things can be enjoyed with self-control and thankfulness as good gifts from God. But God himself is to be our comfort and our refuge. True joy is found in him alone. Listen to what God said through the prophet Jeremiah when the Israelites sought what they needed apart from the Lord. You don't have this reference in your notes. It's Jeremiah 2.13. And it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, nothing will give us the living water we need but God himself. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so regarding alcohol in particular, I would just want to urge us all to be careful. If you find it flowing often, if it feels like your reward at the end of a hard day, 
be careful because we're communicating something when we do that. And it's not a message that puts Christ on display as our greatest treasure and our refuge. So we've seen that the reverent woman is a woman who is shepherding her heart away from malicious gossip, away from bondage to alcohol or to anything in order to find her joy, her comfort, and her peace in Jesus Christ himself. That is the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. Okay, finally, number four, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good, and this includes both formal and informal instruction in the things that are beneficial, and that instruction must be rooted in God's word. The word gives us God's wisdom. Again, we see how foundational discipline one is for the ministry God gives us with one another. We need to be women who bring others to the word of God, who help one another understand God's character and his promises, the gospel and its implications, how to respond in obedience to the word, and how we apply God's wisdom in practical ways. And we do this both through our example, being examples of all that's coming in verses 4 and 5, as well as through our words. It's notable that it wasn't Titus who was told to do this. The church needs older women to teach young women in this way. Okay, still on page 3, that brings us to Roman numeral 2, what transformed older women must train the young women to be. Verse 4 begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. And as we've already said, this is God's job description for older women. This word encourage, also translated as train or as admonish, is a Greek word with a complex meaning, which is why one English word can't quite capture what it's trying to say. It's found only once in the New Testament, yet it's related to the Greek word for sensible used throughout the book of Titus. And as we will see, sensible carries the idea of a sound mind. Similarly, the Greek word translated encourage means to make of a sound mind, to instruct or train someone to behave wisely and properly. If we wanted to make up a word, we could say the older women are to sensibilize the young women. It has to, has to do with bringing someone to his or her senses so that they will live a sensible, self-controlled, sober, spiritually disciplined life. This is what the older women are aiming at as they encourage and train the young women. And it's an ongoing influence because growth takes time. We need to be patient with one another. And young women, this is saying that you need older women to teach and encourage you, to advise you, sometimes even to urge you. And that requires a lot of humility. It requires a lot of grace. It requires being teachable. But you need to seek this out. This is a real opportunity for us to grow together in light of the gospel. Okay, so let's read Titus 2, verses 4 and 5 again, and notice what the older women are to teach the young women. Older women are to be what we've seen in verse 3, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. 
older women are to train the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. And this is addressing all women, whether or not we are married, whether or not we have children. The list begins by addressing those relationships because they're very common and it's important that we do understand God's design for them. But in the book of Titus, Paul is concerned with setting the whole church in order and God builds the church from people of all seasons of life. So there are no spectators here. We all have an important role in protecting God's word from dishonor and strengthening the church. So at the top of page four, we see the first quality there. To love their husbands. Um, in the Greek, this is literally to be a husband lover. It describes who a woman is, not just what she does. To be a husband lover means a wife is to model her love for her husband after God's love for his people through Jesus Christ. So just think about that. Modeling your love after God's love for his people. And an unmarried woman is a husband lover when she values biblical marriage and she encourages those around her to think rightly about marriage and to love their husbands. As we describe what it means to be a husband lover, you might want to follow along with that list in the starred question down at the bottom rather than trying to write them all down because we'll have a lot of descriptions of what it means to love your husband here. To love her husband, a wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband, cherishing him. This is a self-giving love that we choose to give. And this is all the more astounding when we remember that most Cretan marriages were arranged. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply chose to love her husband would stand out. God's work in her would be unmistakable. And with all of the confusion in our culture about marriage and love, we also have an opportunity to display God's work in us by placing a high value on what God says about marriage and by the way we love our husbands. Although today marriage is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love which must be learned. It's all too easy for sin to creep into our attitude towards our husband. Criticism, indifference, unforgiveness or bitterness, judgment, ingratitude, discontentment, even boredom. We have to actively cultivate self-giving love and to encourage one another to model our love after God's love for us in Jesus Christ. So what might that look like? Well, in the same way that we do not have to earn God's affection, we can't earn God's affection, don't make your husband try to earn your love. Don't withhold your friendship or your affection. Love unconditionally, even when others are stubborn and disobedient, because that's exactly what you cherish about God's love for you. Let them cherish that kind of love from you. Lavish God's grace on them, just as God has lavished his grace on you. It's no mistake that the marriage relationship is listed first. After our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be in our heart is to be first in our heart, in our mind, in our priorities, before children, ministry, activities, or work. 
it's easy to get so busy that things get turned around and other things take priority. Um, and it's easy to find ourselves caring more about getting things done and wishing our husband would help us rather than choosing to find joy in serving and loving him. And so we need to model and encourage women to give their best to their husband, to be thoughtful of him, to be respectful of him. There's, I just love all the verses that Janet shared today because we get to hit them twice. Ephesians 5.33 says the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And the verse doesn't say if he deserves it. That's how the world thinks. But the gospel is put on display when we respect our husband out of our love for God. It honors God when we truly and genuinely from the heart, because of God's love for us, pour ourselves out in self-giving love for our husband, putting his needs and preferences above our own and treasuring him, not comparing him to anyone else. This is the kind of love young women must be taught. And if you're not married, I want to challenge you as well. Are you cultivating this kind of Christ-like, self-giving love towards the people God has put in your household or who visit your household? It will look different outside of a marriage relationship, but the foundational principles of selflessness and love and grace being motivated by God's love, those are the same. This kind of love for others shows the lost world that we belong to Christ. All right, that brings us to page five. So the next one is to train young women to love their children. Older women are to encourage young women to love their children or to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have opportunities to love and cherish children. There are children all around us whom we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church. Excuse me. And it's really encouraging to see the many ways that so many of you are busy loving children here at Grace Bible Church, how you serve, how you care for your families. Well, being a lover of children means modeling our love after God's love for his children, a love that drove him to send his son to the cross in our place. We are to cherish and enjoy children and to be intentional about loving them in a way that points them to Christ. It's a selfless and affectionate love. For those who are parents, we must carry that self-giving love into biblical instruction and correction. Hebrews 12:6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The same is true for parents. Biblical discipline is not an angry outburst because we are fed up, nor is it letting our children get their own way and calling it grace. Grace is not a lack of correction. Biblical discipline is done in obedience to God and in love for our children, a love that displays and proclaims the self-giving love of God to save sinners. It includes not only correction, but also instruction in righteousness. We love our children by being committed to glorifying God through faithfulness in the parental duties he's entrusted to us. And when we do that, the result will be a God-centered home rather than a child-centered or a parent-centered home. And this chart in your notes, we borrowed this from the BCEV training manual, it helps us to evaluate that. You see there's some characteristics of a child-centered home might be that the parents desire the child's happiness 
above all else. Um, where interrupting, manipulation, rebellion are acceptable in some way. You see that um, escaping consequences for sinful and irresponsible behavior is, is okay. Uh, parents are, are more like peers. And the last item there, the entire family exists to please the children and to make them happy. In contrast, a God-centered home is where children learn that their parents prize pleasing God and that serving others is a joy, that cheerful, immediate obedience is right. Um, further down, we see that their opinions are valued, but the home is not a democracy. Children understand parents have other God-given responsibilities. They understand that sin has consequences and that honor towards authority is appropriate. They see that dad and mom function in unity, that marriage is the, 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 the relationship that has the priority before the relationship between parent and children, and that dad and mom have distinct God-given roles. Now, there could be some real eye-openers there, because it's really easy to drift towards being child-centered, especially in today's culture. So use this as a tool. Sit down with your husband if you're married and prayerfully look at your home life. Identify ways that you can grow in loving your children by cultivating a more God-centered home. This can help us cultivate a God-centered home for the children who visit our home as well so that we don't inadvertently undo what their parents are aiming for at home. Um, this chart could also be helpful for older women as we train young women. And this might just be a starting point. After evaluating, you may realize there's a need to reach out to others in the body who can help you grow in biblical parenting. And that's what the body of Christ is for. So I encourage you to do that. Okay, that brings us to page six, where we see sensible. The command to be sensible is all over the book of Titus. A lack of sensibility must have been a big problem in the churches on Crete. In chapter 1, we find that it's one of the elder qualifications, and the old men, the women, and the young men are all commanded to be sensible. So what does it mean to be sensible? Well, being sensible deals primarily with the mind or thought life. The lesson you heard last time from Anne was all about how to glorify God with our thoughts, our attitudes, and our emotions. So that lesson is really helpful to keep in mind as we think about being sensible. It means that we're not to run for the edges or extremes in our thinking, but instead we strive for reserved, balanced thinking that's not easily moved off-center. That being sensible means that we will give each situation its proper weight, not too much, not too little. It's being self-controlled with our thoughts and emotions. And whether or not we're being sensible is to a large degree determined by our focus, by what we allow to have the weight in how we think. You know how cameras have lenses that can make objects in the background turn blurry or fade? Well, being sensible is not letting our circumstances blur what's eternally true, what we know to be true from God's word about God's character and his promises and his purposes and trials his design for the body of Christ, the danger of our own sin, and his provision for believers to walk in newness of life. Being sensible means keeping these kinds of weighty, unchanging truths in sharp 
focus so that they have the weight in our thinking and consequently in our emotions and our actions as well. We aren't to let the situation undermine our confidence and hope in the Lord. Keeping eternal truth as the standard for our thinking guards our peace and our trust in the Lord. And as we are sensible, we protect the honor of God's word. Well, that brings us to number four, pure. Pure means chaste, morally pure in all ways. Now, throughout the book of Titus, there's a contrast between purity and impurity. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their mind and their conscience are defiled. So there are those who are pure, and there are those who are impure, who are defiled. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes that unbelievers are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That is what impurity does to us. It seeks to enslave us. So when we talk about purity, our focus should not simply be on all the things we can't do. I think sometimes we make that mistake. Rather, when we say pure, it means being protected and rescued from corruption. Before we were saved, we were defiled. There was nothing pure about us in God's eyes. But Titus 2.14, as we've already read, it tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Remember, we belong to Jesus. He purified us for himself. And we get to show that in our purity, loving what is pure, pursuing what is pure, and hating everything that's impure, that corrupts, that defiles. It's fleeing from impurity. Jesus' sacrifice of himself is put on display when our lives show that he has purified us. And purity is God's standard for every area of our lives. Pure thoughts and motives. Again, that's where the last lesson is so helpful. And purity is his standard for our words, our desires and dreams, our actions, our clothing, our relationships, our entertainment, even our motivations for all those things. Scott Maxwell once said, if we never let into our hearts one impure scene from outside of us, like maybe from a movie or a website or a novel, we would still have enough impurity in our own hearts to be dealing with for a lifetime. So don't heap more impurity on your mind with what you let in, with what you look at or what you read, maybe what you listen to. Song lyrics can be so impure. And once they're in, they want to stay. We need to flee from impurity to take hold of that which is pure and good because we belong to Jesus. He gave himself to purify us for himself. And as it says in the notes, God purifies the sinner inwardly through the cross of Christ so that in becoming pure, believers can then pursue clean, pure living. It's all rooted in what Christ has done for us. Purity guards our hearts 
our homes, and our church. And it shows that what Christ has done in his people is so much better than what is corrupt and defiled. Well, next we have on page seven, workers at home. Now, for most of us, our experience with work is primarily with a job or with school, where there's somebody else telling us what to do and holding us accountable, and we either get a paycheck or we get grades, we get some kind of feedback, um, and we know that someone will be evaluating our work. But being a worker at home is different. This is describing someone who understands the value and the priority of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. She's not waiting for someone else to tell her what's expected or to hold her accountable because she knows that the Lord is her audience. He sees what's done in secret and that sobers her away from idleness and selfishness and it encourages her, especially when she's weary and the work is difficult. God's design for all women is that we be workers at home for all of our lives. It's necessary for protecting the honor of God's word, just like being pure and being sensible. It doesn't change because we are single, and it doesn't change because our kids go to school or move away. Older women must be an example to the younger of how to keep a priority on the work of the home. So what does the work of the home involve? Well, it certainly doesn't mean simply to be at home. It means to be a worker, to be employed with the relationships as well as the tasks of the household. And that will look different from season to season. It takes wisdom to discern what this looks like in different seasons. So let's look at some principles that can help us figure that out in different seasons of life. So first of all, let's think about attending to the work of the relationships in our home. How do we glorify God in our household relationships? Well, no matter what relationship it is, we need to be shepherding our own hearts with God's word because we can't do this in our own strength. It always begins with discipline one. Every household relationship needs to be an object of our love. And household relationships are nourished as we live out the one another's of God's word, which by God's grace is the next lesson you're going to hear. So you can be thinking about that. How do you care for your home with those one another's as you hear that next week? Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That is an all-encompassing way to think about how we work out the relationships of our home. And in addition to those general principles, we have specific, specific instructions in the word for marriage and parenting. We've already touched on these, but if we're married, we're to help our husband. We are to love him respect him, submit to him, pursue unity with him. And if we have children, we're to instruct and correct and discipline and train and love, both spiritually and practically. So those are some principles for the work of the relationships in our home. How then do we glorify God in the service of our home? Well, often our work in our homes includes meeting needs, like preparing meals, washing clothes, cleaning. It might mean organizing our home so that we and others can do our work more efficiently. And the work in our home gives us the opportunity to promote Christian growth and fellowship and ministry. 
That might mean having all the clothes for Sunday morning ready the night before, or planning our day so that in as much as it's up to us, there are no hindrances to participating in our small group. Being a worker in our home means that we minister to those in our home and that we labor to make our home a springboard for ministry, whether that's serving those in our home to support and encourage their ministry or making our, play, our home a place that's ready to minister to others. In some seasons, the work of the home is so demanding that there's very little time and energy left over for anything else, even good things. In other seasons, the demands are lighter and we can be more available to the Lord for ministering to others in our homes and beyond our homes. We may have seasons of chronic illness. When that's the case, though our desire is to be a worker in our home, we may find that at times the primary work we can do in our home is to pray. There are also seasons when it's appropriate for a woman to not only be a worker at home, but also be in the workplace, to be employed in some way. And the challenge we have from God's word here is to make sure we're giving the work of our home the same value that God gives it, even when we're working outside our home. If you're married, um, I encourage you to have ongoing conversation with your husband, to have wisdom and unity about these kinds of decisions, making sure you're placing the value where God places it. God is the one who prepared these works in our home for us. He is the one we're serving. He is the one to be glorified. And he is the one who supplies his abundant grace for the work in our homes. It's not in vain. The work of our home puts God's work of salvation in us on display, and it protects God's word from dishonor. Well, that brings us to kind, number six. This word kind is also translated good in the New Testament. It's a kindness or a goodness that comes from the heart, and then it overflows into words and actions that benefit others. And it's interesting how kindness comes right on the heels of workers at home. Often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our own homes with those relationships. And sadly, often our household is where we can be most careless with being kind. In our actions, attitudes, words, facial expressions, body language, we can be tempted to leave kindness behind because we feel rushed or inconvenienced or unappreciated. But since genuine kindness is something God produces in our lives by his Holy Spirit, then it can't be based on what others do or don't do. It must not depend on whether we are rested or how much we have to do. Kindness is not to be a reaction to those around us, but rather a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Kindness is to be the attitude that flavors all of who we are and what we do as Titus two women. And that brings us then to page eight, where we see number seven, being subject to their own husbands. So what do you think about submission? You know, before Christ, 
all we wanted was self-rule. Remember early in the year you had the lesson with the blue chart all the way over in that left panel? Just in case you've forgotten what you were before Christ, it's a great place to go review and be thankful to the Lord for what he's done. But now as those who are new creations in Christ, we can still find that residue of sin and of wanting to grasp for self-rule, even though God is the one who places us under authority at many different levels, and he always does so for our own good. And so we need to let our mind and our attitude be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. Understanding submission is relevant whether we're single or married. In every season of life, there are authorities to whom we must submit. In our family, job, church, school, government. And the heart struggles we have with authority very often boil down to whether or not we trust God to sovereignly lead us through fallen, sinful people. For the single woman, a biblical understanding of submission helps us understand submission in other contexts, and it prepares us to encourage our married friends, and it prepares us for marriage if God has that for us in our future. Now, being subject means to be submissive and obedient. It's lining ourselves up under the leadership and authority of our husband. It is to voluntarily place ourselves under our husband's headship. And it's not something we do only when someone is watching. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Marriage has this high and holy purpose of displaying Christ and his relationship with the church. Wives get to put that on display by submitting to our husbands joyfully and wholeheartedly. So submission is a good thing, but it's still hard primarily because of our own sinful heart. We love to rule ourselves. We love to think that we are right. We love to trust ourselves. And so we need to realize that our battle with submission is not primarily a battle against our husband or anyone else in authority. It is primarily a battle with our own sin. That's our biggest adversary. We need to remember that the Lord is trustworthy. He is the one we trust and honor when we submit, whether or not we feel like our husband deserves it. Submission is to be done willingly without being contentious. Just because he does something different than the way we do it doesn't make him wrong. It doesn't mean that we never speak up or share our opinions, particularly about major decisions and issues. We do need to speak up in appropriate, helpful, humble, respectful ways. We do need to work for biblical unity with our husband, but we need to wait for the right time to approach him and make sure our own heart is ready with the goal of understanding what he's thinking and of building unity and not just trying to persuade him to agree with us. And we need to be careful. We shouldn't think that every decision our husband makes needs to be discussed with us. 
God created Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can help us ask ourselves, am I being help helpful? Or am I being wearisome and contentious? What would your husband say? What do your children see? It's also important to understand that submission does not mean that we follow our husband into sin. And if we see a sinful pattern in our husband, we can make a gracious appeal. That's part of being a helper to our husband also. We may need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel, perhaps from an elder or a godly couple. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance from church leadership when we're concerned about the consequences to our family of our husband's choices. But always, always, that needs to be done. It must be done with much prayer, much humility, examining ourselves for the log in our own eye before we try to help our husband with the speck in his and with the utmost respect and humility and love and gentleness. Well, let's finish our discussion of submission with 1 Peter 3. Uh, you have it there in your notes, beginning in verse 1. It says, in the same way, and he's pointing back to Christ at the cross, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what is the instruction even for this kind of a husband who's disobedient to the word? Be submissive. Let them see your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit by first submitting ourselves to God in his word. There's protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband, and we can't assume that all women understand biblical submission. It is so contrary to the world's messages. We all need to be encouraged that submission strengthens our families and our church, and it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's all about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. John Piper writes this, Wives, Jesus is your absolute Lord. But once you have rested in Jesus, do everything you can to honor your husband's leadership. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? That this brings us right back to where we began. We've seen that Paul is concerned for the church and that the way in which we must be part of strengthening the church is to live in such a way that the word of God will not be dishonored. And that is a privilege. God took us from being lost, rebellious God-haters, and he purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus to give us himself. We get God through Jesus' death in our place. And then by his grace, 
He places us in his body, the church, and he makes us part of strengthening his church by protecting the honor of his word. Um, and we do this by displaying the transforming work of his gospel in our lives and in our relationships. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, it is rich and it is challenging and it is so hopeful. Lord, I pray, pray for every single woman here, Lord, that you would be pleased to, Lord, please impress on each of us your great work on our behalf through Jesus and the great privilege that it is to belong to you, that we would have hearts that are earnest before you to grow as the kind of women who protect your word from dishonor. Lord, I pray for our discussion time. Lord, I pray that um, each woman would have opportunity to share and to be cared for, to be encouraged and built up and spurred on. Lord, thank you so much for your beautiful design to purchase us for yourself and, and allow us to be your children and allow us to be members of one another as Christ's body. In Jesus' name, amen.